Hi, everybody. Hope you're having a smashing Father's Day. I hope your old man's like by the grill with some new bounces on, some knee-high white socks, some khaki shorts, polo shirt on, a frontwards cap with like the back that has that kind of like leather kind of strap part to it. And uh, he's wearing some aviators. And you're celebrating him because he's the man today. He is, this is his day. So shout out to Lloyd, my dad. And, you know, I'll see you soon, dad. Love you. And actually, I'm going to see him tonight because we're going to do our family Zoom uh, to discuss the weekly movie we watch. It's cute, right? Like, we all watch one movie together and then talk about it. I find it endearing, adorable. You know, it's just, it's fun for all of us. And I'm, I'm for it. And this week, it's Citizen Kane. And never seen it before. And, uh, you know, it's pretty much established as, I guess, the number one movie of all time. Which, man, my God, what a, what a claim to have. Like, the number one movie of all time. And, you know, I had some apprehension because it's 80 years old. So, I mean, like, a lot changes in 80 years. You got the black and white. And also, I mean, you got this kind of uh, the the way people speak in this movie. I don't know if anyone's seen Parks and Rec, but April Ludgate's kind of impression of Janet Snakehole, like this 1940s aristocrat bit where she's like, oh, you sad sack of potatoes. You sorry, Charlie. Like all that kind of stuff. That's how this movie sounds. <laughs> it's kind of this 1940s hubbub uh like wealthy people kind of hemming and hawing and hub hubbub is the right word it's just like i'm gonna like it's got this kind of tonality to it that's just kind of jarring and off-putting but the movie was oddly watchable and i kind of get why it's still today seen as something that was revolutionary at the time because the basic plot outline is this non-linear story and that's kind of storytelling is done as well as kind of anything today. It's kind of got that pulp fiction. You're not sure where it starts or where it ends kind of vibe to it. And it's about, it's got this theme of kind of failing and seeking and seeking out the meaning of life. And it still kind of applies today. So, I mean, it's this, you know, rich newspaper guy kind of trying, trying to defy kind of what the limitations of humanity and failing a bunch. And you just, you kind of feel for him and it kind of, it resonates. And by the end of the movie, uh, you know, it's 4 a.m. So maybe I was just a little bit delusional. I was like, you know what? This still, this still works. They could, they could remake this. I've watched this. I mean, plus there's all this, he, he has this uh, like giant mansion called Xanadu that is like, you know, like basically a non creepy version of Michael Jackson's Neverland, which is like, you know, this huge sprawling space. And if they did that nowadays, I think they could do it well. But uh, so yeah, Citizen Kane, go check it out. <laughs> that's not that's not the topic today, by the way, because that would be a very short topic. Maybe I'll do like five minute podcast once in a while where I'm like, this movie was good. Go see it. Like it reminds me of the uh, Chris Farley SNL interview skit where he would just take he'd like interview Keanu Reeves. He'd be like, remember when you were in the Matrix? That was awesome. <laughs> so that's my five minute. That was awesome. Uh, review of Citizen Kane. But uh, also quick question for all of you out there. I messaged someone today with uh, the, I, I said, hi, period, just H-I, period. And I thought I was being kind of cute and charming. Like, I have this t-shirt where this cute little penguin is being eaten by a, the mouth of a shark. The penguin's waving and in his little word bubble, which just says, hi, period. I'm like, oh, that's cute. And it stuck with me. I actually have a tattoo on my wrist that just says hi, period, with like lightning bolts and pink skulls and confetti around it. And I just think the period makes it cute. But 
the person I messaged was like, is everything okay? Are you all right? Is everything, are you mad? What's, what's going on? And so failed miserably had kind of the opposite of the desired effect. So I got to ask, does the period make that much of a difference? And I want all of you to text someone you love out there today, just hi with a period and nothing else and see how they respond and get back to me. Let me know. And I will, I will consider this an experiment and I'll start taking down results and hypothesis and conclusions or whatever my 10th grade science class taught me about doing an experiment. I'll have to look it back up. But for now, I want to delve into weightier issues. Like these are like life changing, important topics that go overlooked by the history books. So this is my case for why Gustavo Fring, AKA Gus, AKA the chicken man, AKA the Chilean, AKA Tommy half a face was the most important that's right, the most important character in the series Breaking Bad. Mic drop. That's it. I don't even need to explain myself. You're going to be like, why, well, why does he think that? That'd be, you know, I've always thought you should leave, you should quit while you're ahead. There's this episode of Seinfeld where George is learning from uh, Jerry to like end on a high note with jokes. So if he tells a good joke in a meeting, it doesn't matter if the meeting's two minutes into a two hour meeting. He's like, thank you, you've been great, and just leaves the room. So maybe I'll incorporate that sometime where I just leave the room when I have a good point and that's it. And because <laughs> it worked for George, he, they found him intriguing and they wanted more. And like, I'm convinced, I think I've said this before, but the dark Knight, if they ended the movie with the Joker riding in the cop car, like uh, he's like a dog kind of wagging his face out of the back window. And it's like, you thought chaos could win and the Joker might be able to win. If the movie ended like that, I think everyone would have thought this is this is the Citizen Kane of movies, and I think I think there's some some validity to that. But anyways, I'm not going to do that because I like explaining myself, and I'm more I like 40 words when four will do. I like to keep going. So why is Gus so important? Uh, well, first of all, this is kind of interesting. This was the first time I've ever rewatched Breaking Bad, even clips. Uh, I watched the series as it was coming out and it was super important to me. I, it, for some reason, it's just the way that the show created tension, how every part was kind of like a Swiss army watch that all the pieces mattered. There was never, there was never a plot device that wasn't later solved later. Uh, like if someone died, it had resonance later. If someone sneezed, they would explain that sneeze is a significance, you know, four seasons later. That's just the, the brilliance and the wonder of Vince Gilligan and his just attention to detail. But I, it, it affected me so intensely that I just, I could never go back. I just felt like it was a one and done and it'll be in my memory forever. I actually have a, I think 15 inch Walter White mural face tattoo on my thigh. So I can always look down on that and remember the watching. So this was the first time I even came back to it. So, and I came back for Gus. So I was like, huh, why does Gus affect me so much? And why do I think he's so important to the show? Well, I think, I mean, for those of you who don't know Breaking Bad, first of all, like shame on you. Like how, how are you listening to a podcast about pop culture, TV and movies, and you're not a fan or at least know Breaking Bad? Like go sit in the corner, go put on a dunce cap, go no ice cream, no cake for you. 
and you will write on a on a blackboard like Bart Simpson, like I will watch Breaking Bad. You're gonna write that 400 times with your left hand, so it's gonna hurt more. And then when your left hand's sore, you're gonna write it 500 times with your right hand. And then you're gonna write it 600 times with each one of your feet. And then I'm gonna erase the board and make you do it all over again. Because this show, I mean, this is the best show ever, in my opinion. And no, and not my opinion, everyone's opinion. This show rules. It's a Citizen Kane of shows. <laughs> I'm just gonna keep keep using Citizen Kane until I beat beat it into the ground. But so Walter, it's this whole story of him being a science teacher, kind of a failed uh, business chemist, uh, science mind, who gets cancer, terminal cancer, and decides to sell meth with one of his students to pay for all the uh, surgeries and hospital bills and stuff, and ends up becoming a kingpin in the meth uh, business and becomes like really good at it. And if you think about the whole season, <coughs> excuse me, almond went the wrong way not that i'm eating almonds right now this is like two hour ago almond so i don't i don't know what's going on was an almond stuck in my mouth that long all right one cough ready <clears throat> better so this whole i mean it's a it's a five i mean it's a six season uh, arc and during all these six seasons walter kind of has this rise and demise in the albuquerque meth business but his, the rivals he kind of have are kind of just not up to snuff with him because it's like this stupid drug dealer named Crazy Eight, this methed out uh, cartel guy named Tuco. There's neo-Nazis who don't seem to be the brightest. There's his brother-in-law, Hank, who's a DE agent, who's always kind of a step behind. They all kind of feel inferior when you slowly start learning how smart Walter is with all his kind of science and all his uh, kind of cognitive thinking and the way, I mean, He's definitely way overqualified to be a chemistry teacher. You kind of learn like, oh my God, he should have been part of this $10 billion, you know, entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial group. That's a hard word to say. Uh, that called gray matter that he left kind of early. So Gus seems like his only real rival. So it kind of adds stakes to the show like this. I mean, during season three and four, which is really when Gus is, you know, uh, the main villain, that's when the show really takes off. And that's kind of the best, the best version of the show. So let's take a look into the man himself, Gustavo Fring. He's just, he's expertly played by Juan Carlo Esposito, who, I mean, I don't know if anyone saw Do the Right Thing. I mean, I hope some people did because it's historically relevant to like nowadays, but he plays this teenage black militant kid named Buggin. And he's kind of the catalyst for all the action in that movie. And he's really good, but he's kind of this loud mouth kind of you know, preachy, uh, spiky hair, very kind of late 80s, early 90s kind of vibe to him, Brooklyn vibe. And it's just jarring that it's the same guy who's Gus Fring, who's an owner of a chain of Southwestern fast food chicken restaurants known as Pollos Hermanos. And that's kind of his cover for his uh, drug business. And when we meet him, he's kind of already set up. Like this is him as a kingpin already. So that's cool. You know, you always want to see a fully formed character. And he's definitely, I mean, He's got like a ton of these restaurants. He has an underground super lab where he's cooking his meth. He's, you know, he's multinational and he's, uh, he's a big wig at this point. And it's weird because he genuinely seems to care about his restaurants. He's like always there. He's like the model manager for his staff. He's relentlessly like cleaning tables and overseeing his business. And he knows the name of all his employees. And he's just, I think he's just a stickler for detail. He's a perfectionist. It's like if Tom Brady... I ran a chicken joint. I think this is how he'd run it. 
because you know there's just this these certain people that are wired this way they're like i must do everything as perfectly as humanly possible and that's definitely not me and i'm very glad that's not me because it seems exhausting like i'd rather do something 80 percent well and take 20 percent effort you ever heard of that rule it's like 20 percent 80 percent of the effort oh no actually no i'm gonna leave it like that i, I had that wrong <laughs> i was thinking of uh a uh home um, there's a stat for living in your house. I think you use 20% of your house, 80% of the time. And I was going to apply that to 20% effort in life equals 80% results. And I feel like that works for me, but I'm not sure if that's not factual. That's just me throwing stuff against the wall and seeing it sticks. But yeah, just, I don't want to be a perfectionist. I'll leave it to Gus. And he's got like these starch shirts and he's like perfectly done ties. He's always adjusting his tie just perfectly and making sure no hair is out of place. He's out, always outwardly cordial, succinct, calm, man of few words. And he's just, he's kind of, he wants to be like, he wants to be, he wants to disappear in plain sight, basically. He's just as boring as can be. And you find out about his background and his, he, in, in like the 1980s, he has a chemist partner, uh, Maximo, who's like his meth dealer or meth cook. And he's, uh, Maximo's killed for no reason, seemingly, by Hector Salamanca, who's part of the, like, Eladio Don, uh, cartel, drug cartel. And this sets off a blood feud with, uh, with Gus and Hector. Kind of this, uh, I mean, it's pretty much throughout the entire series. Like, this is, it's, it seems like Gus had a romantic vibe with Maximo that is kind of an undertone, and he kind of killed his love for no reason. So he kind of, but they have to work together because they're working under Don Eladio. And uh, fun to say, Eladio. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but I like saying it. And so that's kind of his one, that's his like Achilles heel, his just blood boiling hate of Hector. And he lives in like a middle class neighborhood. He drives a Volvo. There's no flash to him. Even his shirts, he's wearing like these like ugly mustard yellow starched uh, shirts. And what I love most about him too is his mutual respect with Mike Ehrmantraut. And if you don't like Mike on this show, you again go to go to the corner because Mike's this kind of stone-faced bulldog ex-cop who is now a hitman and kind of fixer for the cartel, and he's very much in the same vein as Gus in this kind of no BS, like no flash to him. Just do your job, do it well, be patient, and it's like they recognize themselves in each other. It's like two fishermen recognizing each other in the night. It's like certain people just have certain mannerisms and certain kind of certain tells that you can just tell that you're instantly kind of like them. And I like that the two smartest guys in the show respect each other. Cause I think they are the two smartest guys in the show, or at least the, the two guys who act within their means. And so Walter uh, at some point crosses Gus cause he's always kind of pushing. It's that's the one thing about Walter. He, kind of, he doesn't like being told what to do or like any kind of authority above him. And he's a little rebellious, a little bit punk. And he never seems to get close to Gus, even when he wants to, like, he comes up with the clever plans to kill Gus. And Gus just seems like the perfect criminal. It just seems like he's gonna, always going to be at or for each. He's, kind of, he's always two steps above. He's like the Greek in The Wire. You know what I mean? He's just, he's always ahead of the game. And so, I mean, that that's why Gus is just the perfect foil for Walter, because you're like, there's no way you can get him. And you can... Gus, I mean, 
to show how kind of deadly and uh, methodical Gus is, when he exacts revenge on Don Eladio, he poisons himself along with the entire uh, cartel in this episode called Salude. And like the preparation, he had like doctors set up like a half mile away. He knew he was going to have to drink the poison. So he calmly goes to the bathroom and he like sets down a towel and sits on it evenly and this kind of focused, uh, it's focused calm about him. And you're just like, man, this guy has balls, preparation, dedication, and smarts, and he's ruthless too. So it's like, how could how could Walter, who's new to this game, even get close to him? It just doesn't seem like realistic. And Gus too, I mean, he supports the local DA, DEA and is friends with all the cops. So he's always a step ahead. He's always kind of getting information and no one expects him him to be a criminal. So it's just, I mean, it's jarring when uh, society as a whole finds out about him. And even when Walt kills uh, Gus's other chemist, Gail, who, by the way, is Wags on Billions. So shout out to whoever that guy is. He was also, he was in this, like, the nerds, the nerdy 80s movies. Oh my God, I can't remember the name of them. It's where, something about geeks. And my friend MG would know. It's like, but he's in, he's, he's just a great actor. So shout out to Gail and shout out to Wags. And so Walter kills him. And so Walter's Gus's only uh, only cook at this time. And, you know, if Gus was going to lose his cool and kill Walter, you could understand why. It's like, you're ruining my freaking business. You're making me dependent on you. But instead, Gus makes the right logical move and he kills his own henchman, Victor, with a box cutter in front of Walter. And it's just brutal and refined. It's very like serial killer, Hannibal Lecter kind of vibe. He's showing Walter that he's capable of killing without uh, killing him and ruining his business itself because he needs that blue meth that Walter is so good at making. And this is a guy that didn't mince words or meetings ever. I mean, he doesn't, he's always like pleasant and smiling, but when he needs to actually tell you that he's going to mess with your world, I think he, this is the line I remember the most. He, he tells Walter, he's like, I will kill your infant daughter. It's like, oh my God, you're going to kill his baby daughter. It's like, this guy who owns a chicken restaurant is not messing around. He is not. Gus is Gus is for real. And I mean, we got to talk about finally when Walter does get to uh, Gus. It's so cathartic. It's so long in the making. It's over two seasons. It seemed impossible. You know, it seemed like a mountain he wasn't going to be able to climb. But he found out, you know, his hate of Hector, and he Hector was going to die anyways. So. He strapped a bomb to Hector in his little retirement home and Hector rings that little bell and then there's an explosion and you're like, oh my God. Because I mean, Gus realizes like a half second before the explosion tries to get out and you're like, did he die? Did he die? Is everything okay? And then he calmly walks out of the exploded room and you're like, and he looks fine. You're like, oh man, he survived. I mean, of course he did. He's Gus. He's like, he's like, he's like a Terminator kind of in that kind of refined, doesn't get flustered kind of way. And he adjusts his tie as they slowly kind of pan over to the other side of his face. And his other side of the face is melted off like two faced vat of acid melted off. And you're like, Oh dear God, he's, he's really dead. And then he just adjusts his tie. He falls to the ground and he's dead. And what a great, it was an appropriate death for a refined and difficult to kill character. And they give you like that little inkling of hope that maybe he was actually going to keep walking out. And when, uh, when Walt kind of finds out that he went, that he, uh, he killed Gus, there's no like giant celebration. It's a celebration 
as refined as Gus was. It's like an homage to Gus himself. He just goes, I want. In this kind of shocked, kind of wavering voice. I think he's almost crying too. He's just like so shocked. And, you know, we're as shocked as him. And that's that's what made this cat and mouse game really amplified Breaking Bad to the level that it could really become a cultural phenomenon in its last few seasons. This is, Gus was the foil that Walter needed to kind of become the criminal mastermind that we all wanted to see. And now we get to see Gus again in uh, Better Call Saul, which is really fun. You know, it's kind of a prequel. So Gus has plot armor. He can't die, which is nice. You know, you're like, okay, good. You can stick around. You get to learn about his, how he made the super lab, how his empire got created, his connections with Saul and Mike. And you kind of learn the, uh, the beginning of Gus's obsession with torture and playing with Hector rather than killing him. And it's kind of his, you know, his kryptonite that eventually later gets him killed. He kind of can find out about that. Plus my favorite, you learn about uh, Gus's kind of bizarre financial connections with a German conglomerate company called Magical that's funding his drug endeavors. And it's endlessly fascinating to enter like where the money gets routed to and like the real world of all this. And, you know, I just love, I love Gus and he made Breaking Bad the series it is today. And I think, I think villains are so important. I think on this podcast so far, I've done Bane, I've done Joker, I've talked about Hannibal Lecter a bunch. I definitely talked about Anton Segura and No Country for Old Men a bunch because villains, villains make the heroes shine. And also, I mean, you want, you want to be pushed. I mean, like rivals make fights, Styles makes fights. You know what I mean? Without Joe Lewis, Muhammad Ali wouldn't be as great. Uh, Wilt Chamberlain, Bill Russell, uh, you got to have someone pushing you. That's why I think I don't like Jordan that much because he didn't have like the guy next to him. Like, can you imagine if Jordan and LeBron played at the same time and were going like title for title? Oh my God. Like the internet would explode. And that's, that's my, that's my rant. So styles make fights. You need someone pushing you and Gus, Gus pushed breaking bad into the stratosphere. And those are my father's day's thoughts.